Take your Bibles, if you would, please. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, as we continue our study in, in Peter's second epistle, and uh, really find some focus, some grounding, some firm footing on what the ministry is all about, and what we ought to be doing as Christians in an increasingly pagan culture. The subtle changes that have happened in our culture over the last 20 years has lulled us into a deep sleep as Christians. In my opinion, because of the lack of depth in biblical preaching and the lack of application to the depth of biblical preaching, that warns us that in the latter days things will drastically change and the church will be tested. And in that testing, the church, if it is going to be found to be true, the church, if it is going to sustain itself in the middle of that testing, must, must remain faithful to the truth. How does that happen? Well, lest you think that we're experiencing things that the early Christian church never experienced, you'd be wrong. Because in this second epistle, as Peter addresses these churches in Asia Minor, there were a group of people inside of the church who were twisting the truth. They were saying, the Bible really doesn't say this, this is what the Bible says. And, and they were manipulating the words of Scripture to suit their own desires. And Peter is writing to that church, susceptible to these false teachers saying, no, no, no. This is how we know truth. This is how we deal with truth. We, we turn to the Scripture. This is not a new problem. It's been an existing problem, but it's become a greater problem in our culture today. The text that we're going to look at, I looked at at length when, when we did a series of messages on the appearance of godliness, godliness and, and, and then went into another series of messages about three years ago of how to engage the culture without losing the truth. What's taken place in Christendom in recent years, recent memory, is that there has been this blurring of distinctions between what is distinctly biblical and what isn't, a, a blurring of foundational principal elements of the Christian faith that when indeed those elements are removed, there is no Christian faith. We saw this in modern liberalism that began to doubt there were any miracles and even began to question the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, if there is no resurrection, you are yet in your sin. There is no hope for you. We see all throughout church history that this is a problem. And I believe it's a serious, serious problem today because of the lack of attentiveness to Scripture, not just in speaking to Scripture, but diving into Scripture, understanding why it matters, really being informed on the issues of the day from a biblical perspective and staying true to that Scripture. Again, I'd invite the parents of the teenagers up to the refinery. Some of you joined us a few weeks back when we started our study on Halloween, and I'm not drawing any kind of decisions for your family. You'll have to do that yourself. But where did this come from? 
where are all these practices? What are they sourced by? What, what is the basis of the celebration of Halloween? Well, and if Christians are going to make an informed decision on things like this, they need to know about the realities of life and then ask the difficult questions. Again, if you're a part of the Sunday school that isn't going to meet, we'd welcome you to come up again. You'll have to listen to me rant for another 45 minutes on… Uh, on paganism and its stranglehold in the church today. But this is the very thing that Peter was addressing. There's twisted truth out there. How do we know the truth? How do we deal with the culture? How do we live and identify those who are twisting truth and stand up to those people? Well, there are a number of different things that are happening even in our culture today that are reminding us that uh, we are living in a different age. Twenty, thirty, forty years ago, there was still this notion of a Judeo-Christian ethos that God created the world. People had a, a, at least a baseline understanding of what the Scriptures taught about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The church was embraced by the culture in some sense because it was rooted in those Judeo-Christian ethos and and, and morality. But those days are past. In the last 20 years, and alarmingly, the speed of change in the last five or six years has left Christianity the odd man out. No longer is the world willing to accept our biblical rationale for the way life is. No longer is the world interested and what we have to say. No longer do we have an opportunity to present the plausibility of the Christian faith and and present our faith in such a way that it challenges the culture. Recent book that I read, the title of the book was, How Did We Become the Bad Guys? I want you to know we've always been the bad guys because the truth convicts and the truth hurts And the truth is the antithesis to the evil that is in the world. And they tolerated us for a long time, and we had a voice in the public square, but we don't have that voice any longer. They're angry with us, and no longer is the Christian perspective on life issues one of many perspectives. The Christian view on morality, the Christian view on sex and gender, the Christian view on race, etc., and etc., is perceived as morally reprehensible to our world. Carl Truman, in a recent article, and I'd encourage you to look up this article, The Failure of Evangelical Elites, writes, today's cultural despisers of Christianity do not find its teachings to be intellectually implausible. They haven't and aren't willing to listen to our arguments and then reject them. They regard our arguments as morally reprehensible. How did that happen? It happened for a couple of reasons. The church fell into the trap of accommodation We fell into the trap of backing away from very clear moral and ethical principles drawn from the Scripture and applied to life as we know it for this doctrine of appeasement that says they they have to like us. We need them to like us in order to get our message out. Let me remind you that Jesus said, they won't like you because they hated me. And they won't like your message because it stands in opposition to everything that the culture embraces. And this notion of appeasement 
has somehow brought us to this place of watering down plain biblical truth and the hopes that somehow we can maintain a voice in the public square. Those days are over. And I know that alarms some of you who are older, but your children and your children's children and their children are growing up in a different world. Who would have thought to say Merry Christmas was blasphemous in some sense? Who would have thought the sanctity of life would be so reprehensible to even unbelievers today? Who would have thought that we would live in a culture that rejected absolutely the sanctity of personal responsibility? It's not my fault. That's that's the culture that we live in. That's the age in which we live. There's a truth that must prevail in an age where nobody knows the truth. You remember when Jesus stood before Pilate after his arrest, and Pilate was questioning him in John chapter 18. He listens to Jesus, and Pilate says, then you're a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You remember Pilate's response, don't you? What is truth? What, what, what is truth? Truth is what you say. Truth is what they say. Truth is what I say. There is no absolute truth. There's nothing new under the sun. We are fighting the same battle as the early church. And as Peter writes to those churches that are battling twisted truth, he calls them to be faithful to truth. Whenever you hear some of our leaders today say, the science says they are lying to you, because science doesn't say anything. Science must be interpreted. Science must be applied. Under the guise of science, we have translated into a scientism that says, The Judeo-Christian ethos of morality has nothing to do with our culture. Science will determine morality. Science will determine right from wrong. Silence will determine, or science will determine your behavior. Nothing else plays a role. That is the culture that you live in. That is the culture that you've inherited. How is the Christian to stay faithful in the midst of that culture? Well, here's how Peter says it. In his text in chapter 1, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and to virtue with knowledge, and with knowledge self-control, and with self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For only if these qualities are yours in increasing… They keep her from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling these believers in this age of twisted truth to grow up, start thinking, add to their faith, make it real, apply it to their lives. And how is he going to do that? Well, he says in verse 12, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. 
I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What things are you talking about? Well, look at the next verse. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Then he juxtaposes that against what was happening in the culture that they live in. But false prophets also arose among the people. What is the greatest defense in the Christian life? It is the Word. What is the greatest defense against twisted truth? It is the Word. What is the greatest uh, defense against a, a culture that is, that is moving in a in a terrible direction into, into deeper and deeper darkness. It is the Word. What is the greatest defense when you sit down with your children and your children's children and try to explain to them the difference between right and wrong? It is the Word. Peter is taking them back to the prophetic Word. He is bringing them back to the truth. He is saying, in this age of twisted truth, you must get back in the book. I'm here to tell you that that message is just as important in our culture today as it was when Peter penned those words. Because not only does the culture jettison the clear teaching of Scripture, in many ways the church has as well. And Carl Truman's article is calling out the elite leadership of quote-unquote evangelicalism who have compromised and caved on anything from race and social justice to gender and sexuality, etc., and have in a vain way tried to appease the culture so that the culture might like them. Let's be perfectly clear. If you stand upon the truth, they will not like you. If you respond with truth, they will get angry with you. If you cling to truth, they will cancel you. But if that's the only defense, what other option do we have as followers of the King? Father, I pray that you bless us as we dive into this text, as we seek to add to our faith. And pray that you would find me faithful to the testimony of Peter. Even as we sang, and as long as there breath in my lips, may I preach the word in season and out of season. May I cling to truth no matter how antiquated it is or morally reprehensible it is to a pagan culture. May that truth set me free 
and may I be free indeed to say, thus saith the Lord. As we engage the culture, we're under no illusion that we're going to change them. But God forbid, protect us from them changing us. Give us the courage to be faithful to the truth. May the truth set us free indeed, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to the importance of preaching, when it comes to the importance of proclaiming the Word of God, when it comes to the importance of, of beginning a, a worship service by saying, take your Bibles and turn to, please. I'm taken back to a comment in an article written by Albert Moeller on the importance of preaching where he warns that Christianity in 20th century America has transformed into a non-cognitive commitment. In other words, a non-thinking. It's not based on tried and true and non-negotiable principles. As a result, the binding authority, which was once the Scripture of the Christian moral tradition, has become lost. Many of our friends and neighbors continue to profess faith in God, but that profession is ultimately devoid of any moral authority and cognitive content. We see that happening and playing out before our very eyes, even in the news of this week. Francis Collins, a professing believer, resigning his position for a number of different reasons, but as a geneticist, having no problem with using aborted fetuses and medical testing procedures, and in fact, defending such a position. How did we get there? How did that happen? in a culture that used to have this semblance of a Judeo-Christian ethos. It happened through secularization. And through the process of secularization, what centered and moved the culture, Judeo-Christian ethos, has been replaced with science and scientism. And now, our whole culture is governed by the secular. It is governed by principles of behavior and morality that are outside pages of Scripture. What governs even in our churches today is what Rosaria Butterfield once called sola experientia. What does she mean by that? It is my personal experience that frames and shapes parts of the Bible that I believe are relevant for me. Kind of goes along with that bumper sticker of the 1970s. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Let me clue you in. I don't care what you believe. God said it. That settles it. It's irrelevant what you think. And when our own experience and emotion determines truth, we have lost our way and we are susceptible to the twisted truth that is so prevalent in our culture today. Someone shared an interesting sticker with me. It was given tongue-in-cheek, but it so epitomizes our culture of sola experientia. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Isn't that true today? Take a position and find a verse that talks about that position. That's where twisted truth comes from. Os Guinness in his text, Renaissance, says, 10 million ignorant assertions, even when magnified and accelerated in 100 million tweets and likes, still never adds up to the truth or wisdom or what is right or good. That only comes from the book. Now, you would think that we'd be up and cheering over all of this, but the culture has changed, and so has the church. Now, pastor, 
go a little easy. Oh, don't be so fiery about that. I will never apologize for leaving that the whole book is true. And if it's not all true, there is no truth. And I'm here to tell you it's all true. Peter's saying, you want to survive in an age of twisted truth? You have to get back to the book. Too often we're useful idiots being played by social media, lulled into this sleep where we're not even sure anymore, well, well, is a child in the womb really a child? Shame on you. Of course they are. Shame on you. How did we get here as a culture? You know what the problem is? Too many of you are asking, who am I and where am I going, when you should be asking, who is he and what has he done? Where's your identity? Are you looking for a bunch of tweets to make you feel good about yourself? Good luck. Social media is vicious. You want to find your identity in Christ, no one can take that from you. Paul, writing to a young pastor who was entering the culture, has a pastor on the island of Crete reminds him, Timothy, you have followed my teaching and my conduct and my aim and my, my life, my faith and, and my patience, my love and my steadfastness. It says in verse 14, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing of whom you've learned it and how from childhood, listen to this, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Parents, you concerned about your children today? Your greatest defense is be a person of the book and get them immersed in the book and help them to think biblically about the issues of the day. For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and the training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So as Peter addresses this twisted truth, he uses the word for to transition to address a problem that was taking place in their culture, and an accusation, if you would, that was being made on Peter and on the apostles in this new way, this Christian life. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. They were living in a Greco-Roman culture. But in the context of that Greek and Roman, Roman culture, there was this notion that history was cyclical. There really wasn't anything new. People would just kind of cycle through the same issues and the same problems and the same mythology and the same stories. And if you've done any study and biblical textual criticism, you'll see that one of the big arguments is that the Christian faith almost mimics some of the mythology of that Greco-Roman culture, so the Christians really borrowed that. They, they just took those myths and they turned them into their own myths and their own deceptive lies, and they perpetrated those lies as a pattern of deceivers. Now, remember, these were the false teachers who were guilty of twisting the truth pointing the finger at those apostles saying, you're the ones twisting the truth. Did you ever notice how that happened? Welcome to our social media culture. Because there is no sanctity of personal responsibility, people can be vicious, but to respond to that viciousness means that, that you somehow are the perpetrator and they're the victim. How did we get here? Well, that's what was happening. These false teachers called out by Peter were saying, no, you're the real problem. 
You're just repeating the same lies of the Greco-Roman culture, these, these same myths. You just invented this Jesus, and, and, and you're spinning this for, for your own benefit, if you would. What they didn't understand is that Hebrew history isn't circular. These apostles were building their lives and ministering the teaching of the Old Testament and the new revelation that was coming to them in the New Testament, as Peter writes, this, this is part of that revelation. And that Hebrew culture, their history was linear. Uh, linear. There, there was a starting point and there's a concluding point. The starting point is in the beginning God, and the concluding point is that same God will come again someday and renew all things. It, it was linear. You could mark it by historical things. Peter's saying, ours is nothing like these myths of, of the Greco-Roman culture. We are speaking into the culture saying all things begin here and will end here. There's a clarity, a linear clarity to the Hebrew understanding of, of history. So he says, we aren't following cleverly devised myths, these sophisticated and subtle ways of twisting the truth that is found in Greco-Roman culture. In fact, we are making known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, he is giving us that Hebrew historic understanding. It started in the beginning when God said, let there be light, and it ends when He comes again in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago, if you can somehow deny that Jesus is coming again and somehow do away with the, the reality that, that you are accountable to Him, you can do anything you want in this life. There are no consequences to it. But if you start in the beginning God and you conclude with the end that uh, Jesus is coming again and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and everyone will give an account, now that changes the equation. Peter's saying we didn't buy into these Greco-Roman myths and lies. We made known to you the power and the coming of Jesus Christ. Christian faith doctrine. <clears throat> we will not deny His return. We will continue to preach His truth. And you can say anything you want about us, but what we preach is different than what you preach. We're preaching Christ crucified and coming in glory. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So the false teachers are saying, you're guilty of this, and Peter says, not a chance. Not a chance. You see how he is apologetically responding to the accusations of the world? Not a chance. We're talking about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we were eyewitnesses to His majesty. We were spectators of His magnificence, His splendor, and the greatness of our God. You see, the problem with social media and the problem with, with, with experience and, and emotion, sola experientia, is that it's spiritually irrelevant even if it's privately engaging. 
And what we ought to do is stop talking about what God said or what God spoke to me or, oh boy, I went through this experience. What we ought to be doing is going back to the book. And, and, and that's the big difference in the culture today, and that must be the big difference in the church today. Many of the things that we are claiming because we feel so passionate about them are irrelevant spiritually. It's of no use. And yet somehow we're taken up by, by private engagement and soul experience. I do wonder if emotion is how you make decisions between right and wrong, truth or error. How do you sustain yourself when life goes sideways? When all of a sudden your emotions create doubt and dissension. You begin to wonder, is he real? Maybe these scientists are right. Maybe my faith is, is the problem. Maybe I've misunderstood all along what, what God was trying to say. Peter says, hey, listen, we know this is real because we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. You know the text well. It was the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Peter and James and John go up onto the mountain. And as he was praying Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of the departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It was the end of his life. They're seeking to arrest him and eventually kill him. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, who would be the pillars of that early church, up into a mountain. An angel appears to them, in spite of them being heavy with sleep. And they heard the words of the Father, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Peter said, you're never going to convince me that this is wrong. (laughs) I've seen the king of glory. I've seen his radiance on the mountain. I was there when God spoke. I know the truth, and I will not alter from that truth. I was there. I was an eyewitness. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, that's a really important phrase, (coughs) when he received. Now, There's this false notion that Jesus somehow became the Son of God. No, Jesus was always the second person of the Godhead. He was always God. He is God in the flesh. And what Peter is saying is the Father, having exposed us to the honor and glory of His Son at that transfiguration, was telling us that Jesus was of the same substance. He's the eternal Son. He is the living God in the flesh. He is the Savior of the world. He is of my same essence. He is of my my, my same likeness. And the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. What What an interesting term and title for God the Father, the majestic glory. That's all you have to say about God, right? The majestic glory, He says in the text. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. At that transfiguration, upon hearing the voice of the Father, it could be no clearer 
Jesus as the King, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. John says it this way, having been in that transfiguration. In John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, as the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Can you imagine that experience? Could you imagine having followed Jesus around in his earthly life almost three years now? Things are coming to culmination. He's being pursued. He's going to be betrayed. He will die on the cross for all of Calvary. And Jesus takes these pillars of the early church, Peter, James, and John, up into a mountain. And while they're on that mountain, even in all of their weariness, they get a glimpse of his glory. And they hear the voice of God. That's got to change you. That's got to do something to your life. That that has to somehow give you a perspective that that is lost on the rest of the world. And we know that it did. They wanted to stay there. They never wanted to leave the mountain. That's what happens to us sometimes in our emotional experiences. We never want to leave the mountain. Listen, you can go into the mountain in the pit of paganism and still have that euphoric feeling that Jesus is the king and everything's going to be okay. Just, do you have that? Because if you're basing it on your emotional experience, you're in big trouble when the world goes sideways. That's much of Christianity today. We heard it ourselves. We were there. But we have something more sure. You know what? There's something better than what we heard, and there's something better than what we saw, and then something bigger than that snapshot in time. We have the prophetic word. What is it that gives you direction and comfort when the world falls apart? Some experience some years ago? Or is it the truth that sets you free and you are free indeed? I kind of like to look at my life like the Apostle Paul, a wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of death? What a waste of space I am sometimes. How in the world could he use me? And yet, the truth says, he chose me before him, before the foundation of the earth. Sent his son to die for me. You know how glorious that is? You know how great the, the majestic glory is? Do you understand, according to Martin Lloyd-Jones many years ago, we should not interpret Scripture in the light of our experiences, but we should examine our experiences in the light of the teaching of Scripture. It doesn't matter if you don't feel saved. Do you know the King? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Jesus died for your sins on the cross of Calvary. Do you know Him? You might not feel like you're okay, but if you know the king, you are okay, and you will be okay, and forever you'll be okay, and soon you shall see your king. Are you excited about that? That's where it starts the text. He's coming. He's coming. Don't give in to this twisted truth. I've had all of those experiences. I had more than you did. Let me tell you something even better. You have the prophetic word. Ben Shapiro, a common or a a popular commentator in our culture today, says, facts don't care about your feelings. (laughs) Whether you feel good or bad, 
There is a Savior, and His name is Jesus, and He came into this world to rescue us of our sin, and no matter what this world does to us, we're going to be okay. Do you believe that? That's the truth. That's what Peter's trying to tell us. It's not your feelings that matter. We were on the mountain, but there's something more sure. There's something better than that experience. We were eyewitnesses to the glory of God, but… If we're going to live in this pagan world, we must trust the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. It's to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's something more sure than your experience and then your emotion and your thoughts and your sola experientia. It's called sola scriptura, the call of the Reformation, the Bible alone. Your emotions will never sustain you in the darkest times of life. They just can't do it. But the King can. The Word can. And that's what we base our lives upon. This prophetic Word is the Scripture it is what these apostles received and, and, and proclaimed through the writing of the New Testament. And Peter says, if you want to live in an age of twisted truth, you will do well to pay attention to the prophetic word as a light that shines in a dark place. Do you think we're living in a dark place today? <laughs> if you don't, you're living under a rock. Some of us, spend all of our time cursing the darkness. Peter says, turn on the light. Go back to the book. Go back to the book. That truth will set you free. Turn on the light. Put your hope in the Savior through the teachings of Scripture. Pay attention to everything that it says, a light or a lamp that shines in a dark place. You know what John says about this in his gospel? In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, listen to this, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Are you thankful for that? Can't overcome it. The truth will always set you free. The truth in this prophetic word will always give you hope and, and, and always give you promise. Pay attention to that as it shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What in the world is he talking about? It is been debated by commentators, but I think we can connect it to the first verse in this text. The day dawning is the arrival, the return of that light. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, when He establishes millennial kingdom, we can see Him now. We can know Him now. He is the light of the world. He is saying to those living in an age of twisted truth, don't worry about them. A better day is coming sang a song this morning, talked about our faithfulness to the truth until we die. That's what Peter's talking about right here. Are you going to be faithful to the end? Do you believe it? Has it changed you? Do you know that He's coming, this morning star that rises in your hearts? The light bringer, literally, who is, who is coming again? He then describes this Scripture to us. Knowing this, first of all, of most importance, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
Men did not originate the Scripture. Men did not bring the Scripture into existence. Men did not utter the prophetic word other than being superintended upon by the Holy Spirit to write the very things that God wanted them to write. Some of you have fallen prey to this notion that it's just a bunch of men that wrote the book. No, God wrote the book through a bunch of men. You follow me? There's a difference in that perspective, isn't there? God wrote the book through a bunch of different men. Is He able to do that? Well, if you don't think so, you don't know the God that I serve. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. We call that the inspiration of Scripture. They were carried along, superintended by the Holy Spirit. Every word contained in the Scripture is inerrant. Every word contained in Scripture is infallible. Every word contained in Scripture is absolutely authoritative for everything that pertains to life and godliness. And you know why? Because God wrote the book. And when your experience and emotion don't sustain you in the worst of times, go back to the book. In the beginning, God, and He is coming again. He speaks to everything that pertains to life and godliness. And that's the only way we sustain ourselves, the only way that we stay true to the truth and, and are rescued from this world in which Paganism and twisted truth seems to prevail. I also want you to note that it's the Scripture that comes from God, not someone's interpretation of the Scripture. Really important principle. Most recently in the Washington Post, there was an article written that said that for years Christianity has gotten abortion wrong. They base it on Exodus 21 where it says when two men are fighting and they knock over a woman and she miscarries, there's a price to be paid for that. They said that's the only verse in Scripture that, that speaks against abortion. Now, here's where you need to understand the lie. In the beginning, God, male and female created He them. God is the author of life, only He has a right to take it away. That's, that's the biblical understanding, right? This notion that the church got it wrong, there are men in quote-unquote evangelical pulpits today who are saying, yes, all of these godly men of the faith got it wrong. Here's what the Bible says, baloney. We have a more sure word of prophecy. It never changes. It always sustains, and it addresses everything. Isn't that what Peter said early on in his text? All things that pertain to life and godliness. Scott Swain says, because Scripture is the supreme locus of God's self-communication in the world, Christians are people of the book. And as long as I have breath and stand in this pulpit, we will be people of the book, and I will begin every message by telling you to take your Bibles and turn to please. I have nothing else to offer, but I know the King, and I've seen the King, and I've heard His Word through the Scripture, and I believe every single word is true. The Lord gathers, nourishes, defends, and guides His people through this book. And His people assemble around, feed upon it, find shelter in it, and follow after the words of this book. And then Osginus says, if there is no reason why 
when faith is present, there will be no certainty or certainly be no reason why not when doubt arrives. God has given us rational minds. He's given us the ability to understand the truth, and it is the truth that sets you free, not your experience on the mountain, not your hearing the voice of God, not your audible whatever it might be. The truth is contained in the pages of the book, and the world will never be satisfied if we are people of the book. We are now living in a generation because we're people of the book, that our positions are morally reprehensible and they hate us. Are you going to be faithful to the truth? Are you going to be faithful to the light? Are you going to address your world through that truth? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for doctrine, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, that the man of God may have everything that he needs to live in a pagan culture of twisted truth, equipped for every good work, to give an answer to any man who asks the reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and in fear. And what is that propelling uh, energy that, that, that leads us to the truth and gets us camped on that truth. It is the reality that Jesus has come and rescued us from our sin, and He is coming again, and, and we will see Him in all of His glory, and it is that reality. I pray that it's that reality that keeps us connected to the book. Do you really think I enjoy what people say about me? Oh, that's Pastor Jim. Yeah, I know. He's a little fanatical about the book. When I stop being fanatical, you get rid of me. All right? Oh, he's a little crazy about this. It's always about the Bible. Did you just read what we said here in, in the text? I don't know about him. He picks fights. I, I wish he would just wouldn't pick those fights. The world's not going to like that. <laughs> Aren't you thankful that Peter picked that fight? Guess what it cost him? His life. I don't relish that notion, but I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I'm going to be a people and a person of the book, and we're going to be people of the book, and we will respond to darkness with the glorious light of the book, because it wasn't a bunch of men, but God Himself who spoke, and it's all true. And as the world gets darker and darker and darker, I'm going to believe that a better day is coming. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 5. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures It's all true. The The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You think He doesn't hear you? You think He doesn't know what's going on in your life? You think He doesn't provide the answers that you so desperately need today? He has. And the prophetic word 
And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God of every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. Where did we hear that before? First Peter, the royal priesthood of God's people, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads, myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I stay faithful to the book because I'm looking forward to that day. And sometimes it's hard. It's hard for me and it's hard for you. And it's easier to depend on this world and our emotions. But we have a more sure word of prophecy. Do you believe it? Do you live according to it? Do you believe that every word is right, or do you somehow buy into this notion? Well, it's a little outdated. Men spoke from God. According to Peter, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And in the midst of a crooked and and perverse generation twisting the truth, stay true to the truth, knowing that Jesus is coming again. What a glorious worship service that will be when we stand in the presence of the King. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, wealth, and honor and glory forever and forever and forever. I've heard some of you sing, but the angels are going to be singing. And the foundations of heaven will shake in the glory of God. Peter said, I saw his glory, but there's something better. May we heed his counsel and do well to pay attention to the prophetic word. Father, help us in a godless generation. May the truth set us free. May we be free indeed. May the King come soon, because many are weary, swallowed up by a pagan culture of twisted truth, clinging. May they see your glory as they open the book and pay attention. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Rescue us from this body of death and this pagan culture for your glory alone. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.